Welcome to this live podcast at the Wright City Conference, taking place here at the University of Concordia in Montreal. This event is hosted by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies, Canada's leading research institute and think tank for the prevention of mass atrocities, in partnership with Amnesty International and the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. I'm Duncan Cooper. And I'm Alexandrine Royer. This is the third edition of the Wright City Conference, an initiative established in order to bring together inspiring thought leaders who will provide valuable insights regarding pressing human rights issues. Our aim is to provide Canada and the international human rights community with a constructive platform during this time of great upheaval. In this series, we'll be joined by leading human rights voices who will share their perspectives on some of today's challenges in the preservation and protection of human rights. In recent years, political observers have raised the alarm, warning of the steady erosion of democratic principles worldwide. As globalization brings us closer together, we in the human rights community are faced with increasingly complex challenges. The primacy of a human rights-led international framework as a refrain of global politics is being confronted by a new set of actors that reject basic freedoms. Authoritarian regimes are using new technologies to expand repressive state apparatuses and reassert their hold in domestic affairs. Populist politics are threatening to reverse some of the hard-won accomplishments of the human rights movement. The challenge on how to resist and confront these assaults on human rights continues to gain increasing urgency. In the wake of the international community's deteriorating consensus, Canada, and notably the city of Montreal, have continued to steadily position themselves as human rights leaders. Today, we'll be hearing from a range of human rights activists to share their insights on what some have labeled the end of human rights. Rather than a discourse of surrender and abjection, we are hoping our speakers will inspire calls to action and renew commitments to the human rights movement. We'll hear from the Honorable Romeo Dallaire, Special Advisor to the UN, Adama Dieng, Professor Jennifer Welsh, as well as MIGS founder, Professor Frank Chalk. We are now joined by Jennifer Welsh. She is a professor and holds the Canada 150 Research Chair in Global Governance and Security at McGill University. She also served as the Special Advisor to the UN Secretary General on the Responsibility to Protect. Jennifer, welcome. It's good to be here. So our first question, I will bring it to a sort of local level. You're a McGill professor, but your career has had an international outlook. So what's your perspective on Canada or perhaps Montreal's role in the global effort towards enforcing human rights and preventing genocide? Well, one of the key aspects of the responsibility to protect that I like to emphasize that I think is underappreciated is that it is designed to rest on all states' responsibilities to protect their populations. And the spirit behind that is the notion that no society is immune to the dynamics that can ultimately lead to atrocity crimes. We may not believe that inside some Western democracies, um, but it is, it is a fact and it is uh, a reality. And so part of Canada's role is, is recognizing that that there is a first and foremost an at-home responsibility uh, but also given that in relative terms we have been a society that has managed uh, diversity uh, that has tried to build an inclusive democracy that has a bilingual uh, political system 
uh, a system with different legal traditions, that that experience in and of itself can be useful uh, in mutual learning with other societies. And so I think it's partly our DNA um, that creates, I, I think I could go so far as to say this, that creates a responsibility to share that experience, to by no means um, pretend mm -hmm. that it's a perfect experience. Uh, building our democracy has been, uh, our liberal democracy has been fraught with very painful episodes. Uh, but that's part of our responsibility now is to make sure our voice is loud and clear in terms of promoting the values that underpin uh, Canada. And of course today marks the release of the report from the Commission on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, which has been hailed as a sort of cornerstone in terms of how we reconcile our own past. Mm -hmm. um, some are calling it a genocide. Of course, that's been a contentious term. What's your perspective on that as someone with sort of legal experience in that realm? Well, I guess I come at that question from two perspectives. You know, one, as a scholar, um, I understand why labels are important mm -hmm. and why people fixate on uh, trying to classify the nature um, of harms. And that's important to do uh, to a certain extent. And certainly among those scholars and analysts who look at international crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, war crimes, uh, and ethnic cleansing, you know, there's been much debate about how we should make those uh, determinations. I'm not an international criminal lawyer, uh, but I've been a consumer of international criminal law oh, <laughs> in, my, in my work. Um, I've relied on those legal judgments, so I know that they are important. So we need to have a, a discussion around that. And this commission took a particular approach to thinking about how we classify uh, genocide. But secondly, I guess I come at it from the perspective of a concerned Canadian who wants to look forward. Determinations of genocide are always, in a sense, backward looking. And in the joint office where I used to work, we held the position that those determinations can ultimately only be made by a court. But our work was predominantly designed to look forward. Mm -hmm. So how do we both prevent these kinds of crimes uh, from occurring again, but how can we provide justice to those who have been affected by these kinds of acts? And the Commission has some really, really important recommendations for how we make uh, Aboriginal women and girls safe, safer in the future, how we make changes to address what were some systematic and systemic blind spots and I think that's where we need to focus over the over the next weeks and, and months. It's a really interesting perspective, thank you. So my next question is international in scope. Um, a lot of conversations that I've heard today at this conference talk about the need for renewed international commitments on upholding human rights. What reforms, if any, do you see as being necessary towards strengthening these existing legal or perhaps political or cultural commitments that people have made to improve the lot of people that are being oppressed worldwide today? Yeah, it's a, it's a big question. And if you don't mind, I'll 
I'll, uh, I'll segment my answer into those commitments that are legal mm-hmm. and those that are political. I sense that there'd be a distinction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there is an important distinction. And I'll begin by saying one of the key steps is to simply bring about the ratification of some legal instruments. Um, it was always of interest to us working in the joint office uh, for the prevention of genocide and responsibility to protect that when different countries would um, undergo the universal periodic review process, they would often find in the process that they had not ratified important legal instruments that are either part of uh, the law of armed conflict, international criminal law, or international human rights law. There are still many holes in the actual ratification of important legal instruments. And we should be pushing states uh, to make sure they have ratified, including the Rome Statute, but not just the Rome Statute, even the Genocide Convention, even certain aspects of, of um, international humanitarian law. Um, aside from that, there's the question of how you best internalize and implement those legal commitments. We've had, for example, at the conference today a representative from the Organization of American States. Mm -hmm. And one of the strengths of that organization has been in drafting uh, and encouraging the drafting of domestic legislation that helps states live up to their international legal obligations, right? That you need, in many cases, domestic legislation to make these commitments live, real. And perhaps we could see an example of that happening now with the missing and murdered indigenous women, um, because that would have to go beyond the existing uh, UN. Yeah, absolutely. But it even may be with respect to uh, anti-discrimination mm-hmm. laws, equity uh, provisions, or um, you know, protection of populations, even making it possible in some cases to engage in uh, the application of universal jurisdiction. All of those areas. When we turn to the political realm, I think we need to reflect on what political principles really can do. And one of the misconceptions about responsibility to protect, which is a a political principle, is that it created new law. Mm -hmm. Uh, In my view, it didn't. And that wasn't its purpose. Its purpose was to enhance the implementation of existing legal commitments to close the gap between what states had committed to legally in the Genocide Convention, in the Geneva Conventions, and the lived experience of people subject uh, to extreme violence. And so what political commitments can do is, I think, three things. They can change expectations about legitimate behavior. In the case of responsibility to protect, it was changing expectations about how we should discuss atrocity crimes, that they are not matters solely of domestic concern, but that they should be discussed robustly internationally and in international fora, in intergovernmental fora like the UN Security Council. So we can't hide behind this notion that they don't constitute a particular threat to international peace and security in a very technical Mm -hmm. way, but there's a legitimate expectation that those kinds of acts should be discussed in a forum like the Security Council or others. The second thing that a political principle can do is mobilize the will to act 
and I think this is sometimes forgotten, raise the political costs of inaction. But that doesn't happen automatically. No, it needs commitments. We need all kinds of actors at various Mm -hmm. levels, whether it's in civil society, whether it's in national governments, whether it's in regional organizations, international organizations, to mobilize, to shame, but also raise the costs of inaction. And then thirdly, and I think probably most importantly, political principles can actually build capacity. They can spur the development of real institutional capacity in the case of responsibility to protect, to prevent and respond. Inside a national government, inside a civil society organization, you can actually assist in the building of tools, whether they're analytic tools, whether they're tools for mediation, conflict resolution, sanctions. We can go through the entire toolkit. Mm -hmm. But a political principle should help us build capacity. And you can tell from my answer that I believe political principles are powerful, but we must never mistake them for legal ones. They're different. Uh, That doesn't mean that they can't have an impact. And I think the extent to which you believe responsibility to protect is powerful depends on whether you think political principles are useful, right? There's some people (laughs) who just simply don't. They say, unless it's law, it doesn't matter. But my argument would be we have so many principles of law that are routinely abrogated or not lived up to. Uh, and so we need other mechanisms too. Yeah, that's, that's very insightful. Um, so then I just, I would sort of be prompted to wonder, um, do you think that R2P can then be kind of re-energized? Um, or is it just necessary for other countries to once again kind of reaffirm their same commitments and be held accountable um, on the basis of political precedent? I think it can be re-energized. I think one of the key starting points for that is for all states and individuals within those states to remember that responsibility to protect always applies. There's a misconception that it's only being applied if there's a military intervention somewhere. It applies always and everywhere. States have a responsibility to protect their populations, and states have a responsibility to assist other societies in fulfilling those in a spirit of partnership. So we should always be trying to do both of those things. Uh, that's part of its its power, if you will. I think it can be re-energized in two ways. I think one is, is through the reaffirmation that you talk about, the continuous reference to those responsibilities in formal diplomatic terms, recalling the summit outcome document, reminding uh, national authorities of their responsibilities, but that only goes so far. I think it will really uh, come to life or continue to have life if it's implemented on the ground. Uh, If we see concrete steps that help to prevent the commission of these acts and Uh, effective means of of responding to them, not in diplomatic fora, but in real country situations. And I think that's what a number of people at the conference are are thinking through, how we best do that, how we best connect early warning to early action, which is, I think, a key uh, inflection point for Mm -hmm. focusing our efforts, Um, and continuing to try to move the needle. This is a long game. 
It's not one that we should evaluate our progress in terms of what's happening in any given year. If we think about human rights as a body of principles, it is what, 70 years old? Mm -hmm. uh, responsibility to protect is a decade and a half old. Yeah. Uh, we have to think in terms of ebbs and flows, ups and downs, uh, but continue to be, to be vigilant and look for openings where we can achieve forms of implementation. So, so stay the course, so Absolutely. to speak. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's very interesting. Um, and, I, and I guess finally, to not be worried about contestation and also not to be worried about instrumentalization. Right? One of the, and let me explain what I mean by both of those because they sound like quite academic <laughs> terms. By contestation, I mean norms and principles are contested in the discussion among societies, what they mean, what they should mean in practice, is and should be a robust discussion. And rather than being afraid of that and assuming that what that represents is an abandonment of a commitment, I think we have to engage much more constructively in that. Uh, states are asking, for example, how should the international community assist other states in their protection responsibilities. It's about trying to impose particular blueprints, particular constitutional designs about how you protect minorities, for example. Probably not. We have to think about this in a much more mutual, you know, it's demand and supply uh, and the interaction between those two things. And I think that, uh, that criticism is a legitimate criticism or a point of contestation. Uh, and we have to see a principle like responsibility to protect as a living one. We've also discussed over recent years what it means with respect to non-state actors. It was initially not designed for non-state armed groups in particular. Uh, but clearly we have to see how that principle can evolve to also consider the behavior and accountability of, of those groups. And then secondly, we shouldn't be worried about instrumentalization. We have to be vigilant against it, but all principles to a certain extent will be used politically. Um, the notion of self-defense, that you can only use force, military force and self-defense. Think about how over the decades that has been instrumentalized by certain actors um, to suit their purposes. That will happen. What matters is how we respond to that how we engage in a robust reply that says, no, this isn't a legitimate interpretation of what this means. So it's not enough to let the text speak for itself. You have to kind of reify it Absolutely. through example. Absolutely. Yeah. We have to expect instrumentalization mm -hmm. and we have to be ready for it um, and not see it as, you know, the whole house is burning down because we have a political use of a notion or instrumentalization. We have to strongly respond to it, uh, but we need, to be, we need to be ready for it. And I suppose you take that same principle when it comes to challenges to the liberal democratic world order that through countries such as China um, and increasingly Eastern Europe, Narendra Modi in India, that are kind of eroding this notion of human rights as universally applicable and that uh, diverse coalitions must be respected equally. Um, do you think the solution to those threats is also leading by example? To a certain extent, I definitely believe it is. 
I think that part of the erosion of various normative principles and agendas that we're seeing right now has been accelerated by the fact that Western liberal states have also violated those principles, mm -hmm. if not directly, implicitly through their support for other actors. I'm thinking particularly of proxy war situations and erosions of principles of international humanitarian law. So leading by example is absolutely critical. But there's also two points about this discussion of the, of the liberal international order. And the first is that it depends what aspects of that architecture you're looking at. I think certain pieces of that post-1945 order are more under attack than others. And we have to segment them and understand what the, the threats are. But secondly, if you look at different institutional features of that order, um, say, for example, the United Nations Security Council, is that really a liberal body? I would describe it more as a body that was designed to bring great powers actively into the management of peace and security. Um, and that was a task that liberal and non-liberal states uh, were committed to doing, right? So some features of our so-called liberal international order are very long-standing and are not liberal per se. Even the two principles that are somehow today seem to, to clash and create problems for us, the principles of promotion of human rights and the principle of respect for state sovereignty. That's not an old clash. That clash is hardwired in the original UN Charter. It's always been with us. Um, and so I think we need to have a very historical understanding of this liberal, so-called liberal international order. The second point is that particularly a country like Canada, but I think also Jeremy Kinsman and Romeo Dallaire used this this phrasing today, you know, a group of, of middle power states, yeah. needs to approach the next period by talking not about the rules-based system, but a rules-based system. And there's a big difference between those two things. We want to live under a rules-based system, but we have to be open to reforming the rules-based system that we have. Because there are many aspects of it that are in need of reform and that emerging powers are right to point to. Uh, and if we are not open to the reform and the reshaping of a rules-based system, I think we're in for a very, very difficult time. And Canada should be at the forefront of thinking about that, which includes both the reform of existing legal structures, but also what are the new rule, sets of rules we're going to need for new challenges, whether we think of AI, whether we think of non-state armed groups. Um, that's, that's critical. That is not to say, and I want to go back to the point you made about particular states in this, that there are no red lines, that there are uh, principles for which we must consistently speak out, that we want as part of that rules-based system, that this is an open season on clawing back 
important markers uh, that countries like Canada and others worked to set up, including something like the Genocide Convention, including the notion that there are international crimes, crimes that all states, every state, agreed would be perceived as a matter of international concern and not just domestic concern. So it's, you know, it's obviously a difficult road to navigate, uh, but I firmly believe that that's the road we have to navigate. We won't always get it right, uh, but if we do it in that spirit, uh, I think that's more likely to be fit for purpose for our, our future world. Okay, that's super interesting. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Jennifer, it's been a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this latest podcast, and we look forward to bringing you new content in the future. To stay up to date with what we have planned, please follow us on Twitter at MIGS Institute, and look for our monthly newsletters on our website.